Well, good morning. We're only three days from Christmas, and uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty crazy. I, I don't know about you, but have you noticed how traffic is? Because lately, I can't get around town. I'm not used to it. This is only our second year here in town, and uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of it. But uh, yeah, I can't believe it's three days out, but we've been doing this family series, and it's continually pointed towards Jesus as whether he's the better redeemer, the better protector. But this morning, I want to tell you how Jesus is the better king. And before I do that, I want to tell you a story about how I worked at Sobeys. So I worked at Sobeys for about three to four years, and I worked my way up into the cash office as a supervisor. And I was serving a customer. At this point, we had a new policy, only for our store, that we couldn't use someone else's air miles card for another transaction. So you know how you go through a line and someone doesn't have the card, and you're like, oh, you can use my card, and you get the points. At this point, we didn't because it was so easy for us to just hit one button and take someone else's points off and use their money. It creates a headache. So I had this customer come over, and she wanted to use her Air Miles card for her mother's purchase. So I explained to her, no, at this point, we can't do that. So she started you know, arguing with me, and I said, no, no, we can't do that right now. So anyways, I thought I had served just another grumpy customer, and my day would go on. But probably five to ten minutes later, my assistant manager comes over, and she pulls me aside, and she tells me that this customer had said that I had yelled at her and treated her very rudely. So she said, I'm just pulling you aside, so she thinks you're in trouble, because I know that you wouldn't do that. You see, I had worked there, like I said, for three to four years, and my character had proven that I wasn't the type of person who would yell at a customer who would treat them like that. And I tell you about my character because we're looking at King David. And as we all know, it's very famously said that David was a man after God's own heart. So we're talking about a man who had a severe, like a great amount of character. If we were to look up to him as a man, most of us would probably feel we fall short. He was the greatest king that Israel ever had. He treated the people well. He followed God and did what was right in God's eyes. And he was even, as I said, called a man after God's own heart. These, in our eyes, are great reasons to pick David and put him right there as a part of Jesus' family tree. But there's more to who David is than simply a king, and there's more to his story. First, I want you to look at David's character before he was anointed king of Israel. We see in 1 Samuel 16, 6-7, that David is anointed as king. It's in this narrative that we're given insight in how God chooses kings as opposed to mankind. And it says, When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height or of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. From the very beginning of David's story, we see that it's less about David's accomplishments and more about his person. Samuel had gone through all of David's brothers thinking, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Every single one, he thought, surely this is the one. But he was wrong. None of them were to be king. No matter how killing they may have looked on the outside, 
God rejected them because, again, man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. So what was it about David that God liked? What was it about this man that caused God to say, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will? Well, in 1 Samuel 13, 14, 13 verse 14, it says that God sought out a man after his own heart. And this is a response to an unlawful sacrifice that Saul had made. Saul was a previous king. He was supposed to wait for the prophet Samuel to come and before the sacrifices were made, but he didn't. He panicked and made a serious error in offering the sacrifices himself. And it's at this point that Samuel explains to Saul that if he had followed the Lord, then God would have set up his throne forever. But because he had done this unlawfully, God had now sought out someone else. And I propose to you this morning that the first reason that God chose David was because of the posture of his heart. In 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, it says that God's eyes go throughout the earth, giving support to those whose heart is blameless. David had a proper view of God and served him in obscurity. And what I mean by that is that when no one was watching him, before he was future king, he was watching sheep. Dirty, stinky, Stupid sheep. And Pastor Steve has already mentioned in a sermon before about how dumb sheep are. And there's sheep by my cabin out in the central. And trust me, they are dumb animals. They get stuck in a bush and they can't get out. You need to come along and get them out. This is what David was doing. This is what the future king of Israel was doing. He wasn't aiming for greatness, but simply served God where he was at that point in time. The second thing that God seen in David was his humility. Now, as I said, David was watching sheep when no one was watching him. But even after he had been anointed as king, he continued to watch his father's sheep. We see in the following passage after 1 Samuel 16 that it says directly that David went back to his father's sheep. He didn't expect any special treatment. He didn't expect to be made king right there at that moment. He had been anointed king, the future king, but he went back because right now he was to serve and shepherd his father's sheep. But following that even more, after Saul had made this unlawful sacrifice, God withdrew his spirit and sent a tormenting spirit to him. In order to soothe himself, Saul sought out someone who would play music. And who was brought to Saul but David? And David was actually brought because one of Saul's servants had said these words. The son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. But not only this, but where was David found? With the sheep. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. David kept going back and forth from Saul and his father's sheep. And we see that again in chapter 17. Again and again, we see that David didn't expect special treatment. He knew at some point he would be king, but he didn't expect that he was now, all of a sudden, because he was anointed, he was greater than his brothers, or that he was greater than the calling he already had. So let me ask you, reign as king or watch sheep? Most of us would probably rather pick reign as king 
than to watch sheep. But David was humble, and he stuck to the calling he had at that time. He had humility, a quality that God has seen him. For David, it was more about God. Sorry, for David, it was more about the God who had given him the calling than the calling itself. Let me say that again. For David, it was more about the God who had given the calling than the calling itself. And I put forward to you that the third thing that God has seen in David was his integrity. For in Psalm 78, verse 70 to 72, it says, He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his, with his skillful hand. Now the CSB says that David shepherded with a pure heart, and the NIV translates it as integrity of heart. Earlier I mentioned that God searches through all of the earth. Well, God searched and found David, a man who would keep his commands. David had morals, and he put God's ways above and before his own. It was this kind of man whom God chose to shepherd his people, the nation of Israel. And this is what it means to be a man after God's own heart. You put God first, you're humble in all circumstances, and you have integrity in following the commands of God. David wasn't chosen because of his accomplishments, but because of his heart for God. It had nothing to do with who David was, but with who David served. But like all good stories, it comes with a twist. You see, I've built David up, and there's no doubt that David was a great man and that his heart was after God. But he was not perfect. He failed in three big ways that most of us are probably familiar with. The first was his famous and you know, just little affair with Bathsheba. David at the time, who should have been at war with his men, was at home and couldn't sleep. So he began pacing the room, couldn't sleep. And so he thought he would go out and look out over the city because he couldn't get his mind at rest. And what does he see? But he sees Bathsheba bathing. And after he sees her bathing, he calls for her, even though he knew that she was a married woman. But not only was she married, but both her husband and her father were some of his mighty men that are described in Scripture. So David, being the king, calls for Bathsheba. He sleeps with her. He sends her back, and when he finds out she's pregnant, he then goes to cover it up. And how does he cover it up? Well, he calls her husband back from war. He calls her Uriah back from battle and tells him to go home and enjoy his wife. But what David doesn't realize is that Uriah is another godly man, and he refuses to do so while his brothers are in battle. So when this plan fails, David sends Uriah back to war, but he gives instructions that Uriah be put on the front line and the rest of the army pull back so that in battle Uriah would be killed. So we have these two famous sins. We have adultery and we have murder. But this is a man called, you know, a man after God's own heart. But he failed so gravely. And in fact, it took the Nathan prophet to tell him a story or a parable about sheep for David to realize that he was a man who was guilty of doing such a grievous thing. David had gotten so caught up in his sin 
that he didn't even realize what he was doing and how, how grievous it was. But this is another part of David that makes him such a godly man. For his response to his sin was this, I have sinned against the Lord. Short and simple. Now, you would think after you know, committing adultery and then murder, we would see a greater you know, repentance of David. But I want, to put forward to this, I want to put this forward to you. Repentance need not be long if it is sincere. For one commentator says this, The words are very few, but that is a good sign of a thoroughly broken heart. There is no excuse, no hiding, no concealment of sin. There is no searching for a loophole, no pretext put forward, no human weakness pleaded. He acknowledges guilt openly, candidly, and without any denial of the truth. David knew he had done wrong, and he placed the blame on no one else. His response was appropriate. Unlike his predecessor, Saul, David took all the blame on himself. For instance, in 1 Samuel 15, we see that Saul did not obey the Lord in all that he was supposed to do in battle. God had commanded him to kill all the women, children, men, and animals. But Saul took the animals as, as, as trophies for themselves. And when he was confronted with the sin, it says this, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord. You see, Saul wanted to say sorry and then move on. He wanted to say sorry and be like, okay, everything's good now. I've apologized. Let's keep going. He was more concerned about how he looked publicly than how he looked spiritually. And I say this this morning, that in order to be men and women of God, we need to care more about God and what he sees than the world and what it sees. In order to be men and women of God, we need to care more about God and what he sees than the world and what it sees. We need to be able to have a proper perspective of our relationship with God. Notice that Saul feared the people more than he feared God. And not only that, but he wanted to brush it off like I said, it was, like it was just nothing. David, however, properly acknowledged his, son, his sin before God. There were no excuses, no brushing it off. He truly repented before God. And like David, we should not fear going to God. When we mess up, our first instinct is to try and cover it up. For instance, if a toddler draws on the wall and you ask them who did it, they will lucky tell you it was someone else or something else. At one point, Raylan even told me it was our cat, Luna, who drew on the wall. She, she didn't want to face up, even though I'm her father and you know, I wasn't going to punish her severely. I just want to know who drew on the wall, but she knew she had done something bad and she hid it from me. It's our first instinct to hide. But God wants us to turn to him wholeheartedly in our repentance. It's Satan who encourages us to flee and hide like Adam and Eve did in the garden. It's Satan who tells us that, you're, that we're horrible Christians or that we can't possibly be a Christian anymore. But it's God who says, come to me and confess your sins and I will be faithful to forgive you. 
David not only confessed that he had sinned, but he had an amazing and famous response to the death of the child that Bathsheba gave him. One of the punishments for David's sin was the death of this child, and after it had been born, it had gotten sick. So David fasted and sought God for seven days until the child had died. When he had heard the child had died, he got up, changed his clothes, washed and anointed himself, and then went and worshipped. Later in the passage, it explains that David did this while the child was alive, that God might be gracious and save the child. But now that the child was gone, there was nothing more David could do. He knew that this was his punishment from the Lord. Again, we see that, that right perspective with David. God first, and then him second. And his third sin that I've mentioned is probably worse than the first two. Yes, worse than adultery and murder. And it's recorded in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. We see that David got it into his head to number the people of Israel. He wanted to count the fighting men and see how great the nation had become. And what's interesting is that in 2 Samuel, you'll read it, and it says that the Lord's anger was against Israel again, and he incited David against them. Now, did I just say that God made David sin? Well, not exactly, because if we read it in First Chronicles, it records the event as Satan standing against Israel and tempting David to sin by counting the people. So we can surmise that God was angry at Israel and then allowed Satan to tempt David. God did not cause David to sin. David wanted to count the fighting men, as I said. This was purely out of pride. While it should have been ascribed to God, the blessings that he received, David wanted to take for himself and see how much he had grown the kingdom. This was not a godly thing at all that David was about to do. There was no order from God to count the people, nor did he charge them a half shekel for their souls, as is recorded in Exodus 30, verse 12. One commentator says this, It was a proud conceit of his own greatness in having the command of so numerous a people, as if their increase which was to be ascribed purely to the blessing of God, had been owing to any conduct of his own. David allowed the pride in his heart to grow so much that he failed to acknowledge at this point that this was ultimately God's kingdom and not his own. And this is what makes it the greater sin, is that David tried to take ownership of the kingdom away from God when God was the true, rightful king of Israel. But again, we see David's honesty as he repents before the Lord. For it says in 2 Samuel 24.10, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. Having your heart strike you can only mean that David felt great conviction within himself after he had done this thing. Think of a time when you had done something wrong and you knew it, deep inside. As soon as you did it, it gripped you. You just stand there or you sat there knowing that you had just really messed up. You screwed up. Your heart strikes you. It grips you. And you know you're guilty. This is what David is feeling in this moment. He knew right away that he had done something horribly wrong. And again, David does not run or hide away. 
Instead, he turns directly to God in repentance. And with all this, we can see why David is so memorable, why he is considered a man above men, a king among kings. But let me remind you this morning that, that even though he is a king among kings, he is not the king, which is Jesus. And I set up David because David is such a great character in Scripture that we need to see how great he is in order to appreciate how much greater Jesus is. David is still thought of as the greatest king that Israel has ever had. But there is no way that a man who put God first continually in his life did not look forward to the time that the Messiah would come. And he would look forward to this because God made this promise. And it took this long, yes, but this is where most, this is the rest of, rest of my <laughs> sermon is coming from this morning. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 to 16. And it says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you for wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. God made this great promise to David that he would give him peace from his enemies, but more than that, that he would establish his throne forever. This promise from God has long been considered messianic, meaning that it points towards the Messiah. God points out David's humble beginnings in the beginning of this promise. He states that he is the one that called David and gave him success. God shows how he has worked through David throughout his entire life and reigned as king of Israel. In verse 13, we see that David's son will be the one to build the house or the temple for the Lord, and that the Lord will establish the throne forever. And as verses 13 again and 14, they are directly related to Solomon, the son who will succeed David, but they also point toward point forwards towards the Christ. First, we have the throne being established forever. This is a little obvious. This is an eternal promise. The throne will be established forever. Second, God goes on to say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, this is an extremely personal promise from God. He's saying that David's sons, like Solomon, 
will enjoy the benefits of being considered God's son. And even though they would be like sons of God, they would still be corrected and judged should they depart from God's ways. Now this promise is also recorded again in 1 Chronicles 17 and records a more personal version of the promise, meaning it fits more towards the Messiah. For instance, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, it says, Your kingdom and your throne. But as I said in 1 Chronicles 17, it says, But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. We switch from your to his so in that promise, God is speaking particularly about a certain person. It's not in relation to any of David's children, but looks all the way to the Messiah who will come. And Jesus is the Son of God who will rule God's kingdom and whose throne will be eternal. Now we're looking at the genealogy, and in Luke's genealogy, it comes its place in chapter 3. And Luke is setting Jesus up to be king and the Son of God. The genealogy comes just after Jesus had received the Holy Spirit after his baptism. And God the Father says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And then from there, Luke begins his genealogy. It's almost as if Luke is trying to prove that Jesus is indeed the Son of God who deserves to rule the nations. From the NIV application commentary, it states, The connection to David that Luke sets up establishes rights as regal heir. The connection he shows to Abraham links Jesus to the national promise of hope. And the connection to Adam allows Luke to argue that Jesus represents all of humanity. Now, if we go back for a second, just briefly, we can look at how David responded to that promise. Again, this huge promise of peace from your enemies I will establish your throne forever. Your son will build me a temple. I mean, this is overwhelming for a person. But what does David say? He says, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. I don't see, like, my reaction would probably be like, Wow, you're going to do this for me. Wow, that's huge. But David's saying, God, I know that even this promise is small for you. And who am I that you would do this for me? This isn't a case of a man who thought he was a great king and he wanted everyone to know it. David's response, again, was a proper one. He acknowledged who he was in comparison to God and that even this promise was small in the eyes of God. In David's own Psalms, he says, Who am I that you are mindful of me? God knew, David knew how great God was. And in fact, right now, Israel right now knows how great David is. The Sanhedrin, or the ruling council of rabbis, they have put in place right now in Israel. It was, I found an article from the summer that says they printed a Davidic coin in, in preparation for the Messiah to come. They are still looking for the king who will come from David's family line. They don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, so they're looking for a physical king to come and set up his kingdom in Israel. They don't realize that the Messiah's kingdom is not of this world, and they do not realize that the Messiah, that God, is more concerned about the spiritual reality of sin 
than he is concerned about our physical reality. And I'll give you a quote from Rabbi Hillel Weiss from Breaking News Israel about the coin. It says this, The coin foreshadows the yearning for the return of the kingdom to Israel through the dynasty of the house of David, the Messiah of Israel, the judge of the world who brings wisdom to it. We wait, the people of Israel, for the Redeemer in flesh and blood, and even though he may tarry, we will wait for him every day. This is the king you're waiting for. But I'm going to show you this morning that this king has already come and his name is Jesus. David knew that the king was, kingdom was ultimately not his. Even though he committed that sin, he repented and acknowledged that God is king of Israel. And I want you to bring to another of David's psalms, Psalm 110. It says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. From the start of the psalm, we can look and see that David cannot be talking about himself. Because he says, the Lord says to my Lord, so who is Lord over, king, over the king? David is not talking about himself, but about the Messiah here. You have the Messiah seated at the right hand of God, which is the seat of power, whose enemies will bow down, whose people will worship him, who will be in the line of Melchizedek as a priest, will judge the nations, and will reign over all things. This is the king that David is looking forward to. And David had written this long, long before Jesus had ever come onto the scene. He was looking forward to one who would be called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. For 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16 describes, describes Jesus as this. He is he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And he was looking forward to a king who would draw all nations onto himself. And Philippians 2, 9-11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. David looked forward to a Messiah who would come from his lineage and who will rule as both priest and king. This Messiah would be the ultimate king who will rule over all the nations and judge them with justice. He knew full well that he was not the true king of Israel and that a greater king was to come. 
You see, Jesus is a king who will never fail us. He is a king who is righteous, who protects, who redeems, and who rules. None will prevail against him. Revelation 17 verse 14 says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now, how is that for a king? That he will conquer. And he is the Lord of lords and he is the King of kings and there is no one above him. And those that follow him are called and chosen and faithful. Finally, we can know that Jesus is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords because he's been seated at the right hand of God. And as I said, see at the right hand means it's a seat of power. And I'm going to show you where this is mentioned. This is mentioned in Matthew 26, 64, Mark 14, 62, Luke 22, 69, Ephesians 1, 20, Colossians 3, 1, Hebrews 8, 1, and Hebrews 12, 2. It's almost as if they want to get the point across to us saying, Jesus is now king. He is at the right hand of the Father. He has power. All power has been given to him. All authority has been given to him. And all nations will bow and will confess that he is Lord, that he is king. This is the king that we serve. This is the king that David points us to. No matter how great David was, he was not the greatest king. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, as our Savior, Jesus Christ, who laid down our life for, for us, who died in our place, that we might believe on him and have forgiveness, that we might receive his righteousness and be made right in the eyes of God. This is our king. It is not a king who will, not, who will fail us. It is not a king who will be conquered by enemies, for he has power over us. All things. And as I said, I know we are only three days from Christmas. Life can be busy. And it's hard sometimes to fully appreciate what it is that we celebrate here this morning. And what we're looking forward to. However, I want to challenge us all this morning to take time and realize what it means that Jesus is king. That no matter what we face whether we struggle with some sort of mental illness during this dreary season, whether we're strapped financially and we don't know how we're going to make ends meet over Christmas, whether we have lost loved ones or we have mixed emotions about what next year might bring, we can rest in the fact that Jesus is king, that we serve a king who will not be defeated. There is nothing in creation that Jesus does not have power over. I want us to take rest in this truth this season that Jesus will triumph as king for he has triumphed over the powers of darkness and of sin and of suffering and he will triumph again when he returns in his second coming. As we look back at the birth of Christ, we must look forward to his return. That as Christ came, and we will remember it Christmas Day, that Christ came as a babe. He came to die, but he also came to rule. He came as a king. He came 
to retrieve his bride, to get his people, to bring us salvation, and to rule and to bring all things right, to judge with justice. This is our king. This is the king that we serve. And David knew it. He looked forward, and David knew no matter how great he was, that God was still greater. And sometimes we can get caught up in ourselves and think that if I just do this or if I just do that. And as I said, we can get caught up in the holidays. I know how much stress comes with this. We've had our stress ourselves as our family. Sabrina's parents are separated, and we're now trying to struggle with three Three families come to visit over the holidays in the same amount of time, and it's caused, it's caused stress. I know what you're feeling. I know how hard this time of year can be. But we can take solace and rest in the fact that Jesus is king, that he has already triumphed over this world, that there's nothing that Satan can bring against us that will succeed. For he is a king who will protect. He is a king who is righteous. He's a king who has redeemed us, and he is a king who will rule. And that's the family line of Jesus, our king, our Lord, our savior. And if, we can, if Jesus is the better king, and I've pointed a picture of how great David is, then how much better is Jesus, who will not fail, who will not just rule over Israel, but will rule over all nations and draw them onto himself? Let's look forward to Jesus this Christmas season. Remember that he is king. And no matter what you face, yes, we'll be stressed. Yes, just because you place in faith in Jesus doesn't mean your stress will go away right away. But you can have that peace in knowing that God has already won the battle. He has already won the war. You were already redeemed. You were already one of his children if you believe on him. So take rest in knowing that Jesus is king. Put him first as David did and look forward to the return of our king because he is coming again. The story's not over yet. Jesus is returning. We serve a king who will return and who will reign. Let's pray this morning. Father, I just thank you Thank you that you sent your son, that you sent him to die for us, to teach us, to love us, to take our place, but you also sent him to be our king. God, thank you that we have a king who will not fail us, a king who loves us, who has redeemed us, who protects us, and who will rule over us justly. Father, I pray as we leave this place, as we prepare for Christmas, It's such a busy season. It's so hard to get caught up in the emotions, to be so frustrated. Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit we'll be reminded of who you are and what this season is truly about. And that we would have that peace in ourselves as we're reminded that you have already won. You have already conquered everything there is in this world. And that nothing will succeed against you, our God, our King. May that truth resonate in our hearts this morning, this afternoon, throughout the rest of the Christmas season, O oh God.
Let's ask for your blessing on, on each of us as we leave this place, O oh Lord. And I pray that you will help us to love on others, to show them that you are the reason for this season and what that looks like. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.